Welcome to this Health Unplugged special excerpt from the incredible conversation with Shape Global CEO, Dr. John Lang. As part of our wider conversation, John shared some specific insights into the inception of Shape Global, what the Shape model looks like and how it works, and why he believes Shape is the tool for the future to help businesses transform the way they work. Enjoy the chat and be sure to visit the full conversation for lots of other amazing insights from John. <laughs> uh, let's not go there <laughs> for sure oh geez john um wow okay so what have we got we've got musician uh we've got athlete we've got uh, you who've spent 40 years now in the kind of um health related fields whether that's corporate healthcare, muscle hypertrophy which is something i'm i'm really keen on i want to come back to but um with everything that's going on, John, actually, especially at this time, uh, at this stage of the uh, of the year, with everything, um, what's going on for you now? What's on the what's the project on the cards? Um, what's new for for you? Yeah, well, look, in uh, twenty fourteen, I sort of retired from big business, you know, where I was the CEO or managing director of a of a, a wellness business, um, and that was to you know just start the start to slow down but not withdraw and um because the uh the we mentioned the undergrad degree sports science i did a double major including mathematics and statistics and so there was this um the part of me you know i've always loved the the science of numbers and, and stats and everything and of course with the the phd in a, in a medical field um the uh the combine the two i got into you know predictive algorithms and uh, started generating or doing a bit of work um, doing these HRAs, health risk assessments, and particularly things like health age HRAs, which are you know, done for, for Axel, you know, probably the best one in the world. And um, we did a whole lot of quite creative stuff, added in some, uh, got to work in the area of DALIs, you know, which is instead of just looking at life expectancy, disability adjusted life years. So, you know, as we, we often say, you know, people don't, want to live to be 100 years old if the last 20 years are with, uh, you know, uh, incontinence and dementia and severe arthritic pain. You know, you'd rather uh, just go for 85 and die in your sleep sort of thing, healthy. Right. And so mm. this um, whole thing of, the, um, you know, disability-free life expectancy became, you know, part of my um, raison d'etre, I think they call it in French or something. Um, the uh, So, you know, in Australia, it's a classic situation about, Life expectancy for a male uh, at birth is around about 80 years, of which about 92% is disability free. So there's 8% spent with disability. And uh, that's not all at the end. It's largely at the end, but you, can, you know, your whole life is punctuated by bits of disability, you know, on occasion. Um, if you're unlucky enough to suffer depression, of course, that could be punctuated a lot from an early age, and it's certainly a lot more than 8% of your, your life expectancy. But um, so I started working in that area um, as well, because that seemed like a better something that was more sellable to the public not to live longer but to live um you know healthier longer and uh so if you if you look at something like exercise you know uh if you follow the exercise guidelines and add in your you know your strength and flexibility to your cardiovascular and everything uh, you expect to roughly halve that eight percent right and yeah. so yeah. that's an extra four percent of disability free life years it only adds, so it adds, you know, three to four years onto your disability-adjusted life just, years, but it just, only just, adds... Just through the amendment of exercise and activity, that's the main thing. Ex yeah. 
That's right. Exercise versus non-exercise. You, you're picking up, you pick up, but the, the odd thing is you only pick up one to two years of additional life expectancy, but you pick up, you add to that the you know, three, four, five years of um, of disability-free life expectancy. That's a net gain of, you know, six, six seven years. Right. Um, but it's not all in life expectancy. It's the additional quality of life that's the big gain, not the extended life life expectancy. So you're just spending fewer years in, you know, with pain and suffering and disability. So, uh, so that was, um, you know, I did a, a lot of, was into that a bit. I had done some uh, some very early sort of seminal work in that area, and you know, I came about it. Uh, <laughs> is a a fascinating story that I was only reminded of. Um, you know, a couple of months back, but I was, it must have been 2001, 2002, I was working for a, a company. I'll just look at the business card up there. Um, I won't mention the name. <laughs> yeah. And they they ran a uh, an arm in medico legal consulting. And so, you know, they had, you know, 40 or 50 specialists, like these are top Top, top of the range university professors who are surgeons and everything. And they would be hired out as hired guns to uh, go give uh, expert testimony in court cases, right? So anyway, the head of this uh, this company approached me and said, look, John, we've got a um, this couple, ultra wealthy, right? They've, they're separating uh, and there's a dispute over the, uh, you know, the assets sort of thing. And He's uh, said he will give her, you know, X amount uh, annually to the day she dies. She's saying, well, I want it as a lump sum. So therein is the problem. How many years is he going to fund if it's up front, not yeah. as you go? And right. uh, so anyway, they multiplied that amount by, you know, the annual amount by the, her life expectancy straight off the actuarial tables, you know, um, taking her current age and gender into account. Anyway, she turned around and said, well, you know, Look at me! I'm a, a very fit and healthy woman. I'm, uh, I'm going to outlive the average by a long way. And so, anyway, the guy, um, the head of the business, came to me and said, "John, the it would be really handy if we could predict life expectancy here. <laughs> you know, you've got any ideas?" I said, "Okay, well, I'm a you know mathematician, statistician, mathematician. I know my health and the numbers extremely well i can i can do this uh give me a couple of days and so i put it together knowing that it would be this is going to go to court you know and i may have to stand up as an expert witness so i wrote it up you know very very professionally anyway submitted it to their lawyers their lawyers got you know a few of the you know professorial types you know around and they they reviewed it all and uh because i had a pick that plus nine years above the, uh, remembering standard deviation here is plus seven, so plus or minus seven, so nine years is more than a standard deviation above the mean. That was a conservative estimate within certain confidence limits. But um, anyway, they came back, they said, okay, they've agreed to settle out of court, uh, pay the extra nine years, done deal. And uh, when I sort of followed up, it was the these uh, two or three expert people the opposition had um, couldn't pick any holes in my arguments, you know, about calculation of life expectancy. Oh, I thought, oh, this is interesting. 
That's they wild. are saying that my, you know, calculations are valid and they couldn't refute them in a court of law. And so, uh, so that gave me a bit of confidence that uh, if, if that, did, if, if it got through that test, uh, there's probably something to it. So I started dabbling in that for mostly the businesses that I owned and operated or was CEO of. And uh, so I did a lot of that sort of thing. Then eventually branched out a bit. I think there's probably 30 25, 30 companies around the world on every continent that uh, use my algorithms, you know, you know, in their HRAs to, to at some some point to some degree, and that um, that's an interesting you know, sort of bit of business because that's licensing um, uh, algorithms on a global intellectual property market, so it, it can create yeah. a nice little ongoing revenue stream even when you're not working. So there you go, a little bit, bit of a tip for the future, Dan. Uh, thanks for that. I'll. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I'll try yeah. to try to remember that one. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that takes us back to your original question: Is what am I doing now? Well, most yeah. of the work is still doing that sort of HRA algorithm development work, but we're now, of course, working a lot more in the mental health space and everything. And um, and of course, the last four years, as you as you know, I think the um, I'm after my uh, is is a hail mary pass a thing in the UK? Do you know what that is? Yeah, I, yeah, I know what it is, but I, I don't think it's. Yeah, in, in American football, they call the Hail Mary pass, you know, when the quarterback goes back and he throws the 70-metre right. Hail Mary, hoping it's going to fall into the arms of the wide receiver or something. Or, yeah. And um, that's that one last-ditch effort for, for <laughs> greatness. And um, So what I've been working on for four years is something called SHAPE, the Survey for Health, Absence, Productivity, Engagement, and it's, um, it's my Hail Mary. So uh, – and – what it is, essentially, I've worked a lot in physical and mental health, developed algorithms and audit tools and interventions and all that sort of stuff very successfully over many decades. But I always felt that we were you know, helping people to get back on track physically and mentally. They go back into that toxic work environment with a shitty manager who doesn't understand the impact of a long working hours culture and this and that. And, of course, they just get beat up again by a bad, bad people in a bad environment. And we always felt impotent in in dealing with that because we were um, we weren't part of the main game right so shape um, incorporates now 12 elements so we've got physical and psychological health but we've got culture we've got engagement we've got management style we've got the physical OHS and the physical work environment we've got the soft work environment the IT and the resources component we've got work-life balance and factors outside of work so it's a real uh, full-blown broad brush look at everything that can infect, affect an individual's performance at work. So it sort of travels over the territory of uh, EAP, OH&S, wellness, org, psych, employee performance, management training, um, you know, um, and that, I think, for me, it's going to get me past that or the, the impasse that we had when we're just dealing with physical and psychological health and don't have a seat at the main table about engagement and culture in organisations when we can't affect the change we want. So this is uh, what I've been working on for four years. It probably or hopefully launches next month and uh, very excited because it should absolutely revolutionize this space uh, right. if um, if it takes off you know fingers well, crossed absolutely fingers crossed it's the first version of a tool basically for at least from my perspective as well that i've heard of that looks to bring so many different elements of as you as you say productivity work culture um sort of health age is rooted within this like tool as well yep. 
health is in there for, for sure. It's not the um, not you know as um, comprehensive as you would get in a full blown HRA. But you know, let's face it. The um, if I want to be minimal, minimalist about it, uh, the keys to good health: eat well, keep fit, manage stress, don't smoke, and get adequate sleep. You know, bingo. There's uh, not many. I can't believe I went to university for four years to you know learn that. <laughs> Uh, uh, and this is probably another aspect of you know my evolution in the wellness business. We realised a long time ago, as you would know, you know, telling people what to do is, doesn't achieve much. You need to understand the you know the behavioural drivers, and you know, so we do a lot of work in you know behaviour change and behaviour behavioural strategies. Um, do a lot of work with the trans theoretical model of behaviour change, and uh, you know, really try and build programs that are uh, reflective of and um, subservient to the models that we know work. And, you know, I've, we've published studies that show that, you know, appropriate application of the trans-theoretical model doubles, triples, or even quadruples the likelihood of successful behaviour change. So why would you not go there? Um, so... When it, yeah. comes to the, when it comes to the mental health element of the health age uh, HRA, John, I, I appreciate... I guess potentially, correct me if I'm wrong, potentially it's easier when you've got things like smoking, I don't know, cholesterol, blood pressure, because these are all objective measures, right, by which you can yep. use as a yardstick. But when you've got mental health, which is, mm. you know, anything, stress, anxiety, depression, yeah. just give me just give me an idea, I guess, of how, how you take something like that, which is, I guess, in some ways very subjective, but build that into a tool that's yeah. going to help to predict someone's health yeah. span, for example. Sure. Well, look, as I just flippantly pointed out, you know, health is uh, well keep fit, <laughs> manage right. stress, don't smoke. In stress, there's um, something called a SISC, I don't know, S-I-S-Q. It's called a single item yeah. stress questionnaire. Yeah. And it's simply asking someone, scale of one to 10, you know, how much stress do you feel? Now, that single question gives you 60 to 70% of the uh, predictive value of a full-blown you know, um, something like a core 10 or a DAS or a, you know, STAI, a state trade anxiety inventory, et cetera. So it's, you know, people, if you ask them, you know, just that simple question, they've got a pretty good, uh, going to give a pretty accurate response. Now, what it doesn't give you is a lot of insight as to what and why, and uh, therefore it doesn't give you a lot of insight into how you might support, the, you know, an intervention or give them guidance, et cetera. That's why we go with um, other stuff. But the value of the sort of mental health um, explorer we call it in shape is um, we not only look at you know the depression stress anxiety symptoms we look at sources of stress we look at um, techniques people use their effectiveness or or ineffectiveness and um, you know physical mental you know behavioral symptoms etc so we build up a really good image of what's going on in that person's world from that psychosocial psycho-emotional perspective but that is one of 12 explorers you put that within the context of their work culture the data on bullying and harassment their the management style the and, um, and the adequate training support um, you know the commitment pyramid you know we 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 say that um, you know 
to have committed employees, you essentially need at the base of the pyramid safety and security. So it's it's Maslow's hierarchy all over again. So safe and secure safety from being bullying and harassed, but security of tenure and income, etc. There's reward and remuneration. There's affiliation, you know, feeling part of the team, your opinion matters, you listen to uh, growth, you know, uh, where to from here? Is there a pathway within your organisation onwards and upwards? Is it catered for and nurtured? And you get up to the... Um, the Maslow equivalent of self-actualization, which is work-life harmony. So can you do all that in your work and still have a life outside of work? If you can't answer that question, if you can't say yes to that, you're missing out on, you know, the right. Maslow equivalent of the tip of the pyramid, which is what we all should aspire to, to do. And so all that's built in. But when you look at someone's mental health amongst 11 other explorers, you start to realize the power of integrated data. Now, normally it would take probably four or five different providers, you know, your EAP and OH&S people, your org psych, your culture mm -hmm. experts and everything, all yeah. doing different things. And guess what? They don't speak to each other. Their data is siloed, no common um, unifiers to integrate the data across those data sets. So they can never do the multi-dimensional um, analytics to see the, the real, often more complex picture. And that we believe is the you know the real value that lies in there. Uh, what is, when we look at that someone's mental health, how does it relate to all those other factors? What are the drivers? And you can start to really um, unpick the the realities of what's going on there. So I guess that your hope then for this for the shape tool in this case, when you're bringing together all this data, is to what is it to unite the different providers underneath for workplaces? What's your I guess what's your personal aspiration really for for this in the in the longer term? Yeah, yeah look, the there's a few things that we sort of built into it that um, for me, you know, it's not just a survey; it is a, an intervention in its own right because it does give you results, recommendations, best practice guidelines. But some of the interesting things, and you know, if you put yourself in this situation. You're a member of a team, you have a boss that sits above you, he has a boss. And uh, But when your company, all the employees do the, the SHAPE survey, you can see your results, your overall result for the SHAPE survey, a single score out of 100. You can see the 12 Explorer results. You can drill down to individual question level results. But you can see that not only for you, you can see it for your team. So if you are you know, completely disengaged, for example, you're scoring 22 out of 100 on the engagement explorer, uh, but you notice that the uh, team score is 80, 82. You're an outlier here, and there has you have to look at the questions, the individual questions. Say, why am I different here? What's driving this? Um, and of course, the manager sees not only the his personal results, sees the team's results, and so this can now become the topic of discussion at team meetings. Where where are our where are our weak point weak points in terms of job satisfaction of members of my team, the commitment of employees to the company, the engagement with me as their their, their leader, etc. Um, and so it puts the manager in as a you know potentially a great position to be a facil facilitator, but. One of the great, the best things about good cultures is transparency. And so what um, mm. the, as a, a lowly employee, Dan, you know, you can actually um, not only see your the, the results of your peers in your team, not individually, of course, just aggregated, but because you can see the team result, you can also see the, um, the guidance that's been given to your team manager. And you need to look right. at that and say, well, if my manager doesn't act on these things that are undermining, uh, you know, 
physical mental health of team members, performance and productivity, absence and claims and all this sort of stuff. He's, he's not doing his job. So if I feel strong enough about it, I will, you know, I'll raise it at a team meeting and say, look, you know, we've got these shitty results in our XYZ explorers. We've got some, been given some guidelines. They make sense to us. When are we going? You know, so there's that multi-level accountability up and down. And of course, the executive gets uh, all the executives <clears throat> in the high, highest level. They, of course, you know, can do big things on the culture side of things. They can yeah. alter and, and review and adapt uh, policies and uh, practices, procedures, and start to the trickle-down effect from top down while employees are pushing bottom up. But I've never seen you know anything in my life like this that uh, has, includes all the information from all the players so that they can all see the role that each other's play, playing in this. And so that, to me, is a very powerful you know, cattle change catalyst. Absolutely. We, we, when you mentioned about the higher level ranking, the CEOs, MDs, managers, even at that point, um, it's hard to see, it's hard to think of a lot of examples, at least of where like a culture within a well-being has been knowingly transformed or attempted to be transformed uh, because the person or the group at the top have decided they're going to change things. When you take these kind of larger corporations and businesses and so on, who are maybe stuck in their ways, they've done it for you know generations or, or, what, or what have you, things just don't tend to change very easily. And I guess that's where the, the, the idea for this tool came from. But for you, what's the, I can see the buy-in for, for quite a few different levels here within a business, but if you're trying to, what would you say is the buy-in for the people at the top of the chain? Uh, <laughs> to take part in this because if they're going to start to expose themselves data wise and results and so on what's the big benefit to them do you think yeah well look you can take the the mercenary approach and bring it all back to numbers so you know the sitting within shape is a very uh, sophisticated calculation engine you know took me a few years to grind it out but um yeah. we can link uh all those explorers to changes in, you know, productivity, presenteeism, absence, um, staff turnover. You know, obviously, you know, poor managers and bad cultures have higher staff turnover. And in the UK, I think you, you know, at the the at the the bottom decile, you, you're averaging over thirty percent per annum, you know, employee turnover at the right. the top decile, the ninetieth percentile, you're averaging more like three to four percent. Now that means the difference between best and worst company is is huge when you look yeah. at turning over a third of your staff unnecessarily. So there is a figure you can attach to that as you can for, you know, uh, claims, you know, um, you know, mental health claims are huge all over the, you know, the industrialised world in particular. And um, so we calculate the, the, you know, the likely benefit on all those areas of, um, I think we call it, <laughs> the acronym is CRAP. <laughs> so it's, right. uh, um, CRAP. So, uh, Retention, absenteeism, productivity, and claims. Okay, so CR claims, retention, absence, and productivity, and um, and that is down to um, we don't report at individual level that because uh, it's far too granular to be individual, um, and we don't want to put a dollar value on an individual's contribution like that because it doesn't doesn't make sense. It only makes sense on bigger numbers, but um, we do do it at um, for hours of productivity gained at individual level. And you know our message to people is okay. If we, if you 
if these things improve at your workspace uh, and elements of shape uh, are improved by management, you, et cetera, and you, uh, you know, pick up a yeah, 100 hours of extra productivity through presenteeism effects over the, the 12 months. Well, that's two and a half weeks of time. Take a week for yourself, give a week to the company and uh, everyone wins, you know, sort of thing. So it's not so that you can just continually to work longer and harder. Achieving more in less uh, allows you to uh, at least you know, look at that life balance situation more positively. Um, so that's the mercenary pr approach, reducing it down to numbers. But, you know, a lot of senior managers these days are right into uh, employer of choice, good corporate citizenship. It is this, just the right thing to do. And, and good on them, you know, they, um, they, regardless of the economic uh, uh, and financial outcomes. And so there's certainly that aspect of it. And there's look, really interesting data if you look at the, um, the companies that have won the you know the best places to work uh, mm. awards in the US, they um, or and the, in particular the best wellness programs, they actually outperform the uh, the Fortune 500 index by around about two and a half to threefold over a period of 14, 15 years. So that's a massive difference. That's that's stock yeah, market. Yeah, that's day. huge. Okay, yeah. now. Of course, you read about this in a wellness magazine, and it would you'd be led to believe that wellness is doing the job. <laughs> but wellness just happens to be something that good companies do, or that they do well. And so, good companies get a lot of these other shaped things in line. You know, all the good management practices, the good, the good, you know, cultural everything from senior management policy level stuff through to walking the talk at the uh, middle level through to actionable stuff at grassroots level. And it's all those other, you know, 10 or 11 explorers that are uplifted by good um, good companies, good cultures and good managers that are delivering a great uh, outcome, stock market outcome. Wellness programs happen to be a biomarker okay, right. of those. Yeah. So they're not, you know, we're, we're over overplaying our, you know, the magnitude of our impact if we're claiming all that upside is just due to the fact that people, you know, did 150 minutes of exercise a week and ate more fruit. But, um, you know, it's that's why shape is, I think, the right, the tool for the age because it does look at all those things together and very rarely does that happen. So it's kind of, you're, you know, you're hoping maybe to transform, I guess, the, the health, I'm not using health as in physical health here, but the health of an organization from grassroots right to the top. You've got people at the bottom who are going to be uh, better off potentially as a result of this kind of intervention and then the changes within. And then right at the top, I guess, financially speaking, money talking, you're potentially going to see big improvements that way around as well. So Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, look, it's um, yeah. This is all algorithm-based and to some degree speculation, but it's based on you know solid peer-reviewed literature over the last you know decade or decade or two, which is irrefutable. You know the uh, mm. the, the um, what we've had to be a bit careful about is that we don't double count. You know the um, the uh, if you if you get a certain improvement, you know, in productivity by improving your um, uh, physical fitness and then um, there's another improvement you get for improving your mental health. What you be a bit careful, part of the improvement in mental health could be, was due to your act activity because activity is great for your mental health. So you don't want to count it in both both places. And so we have a way, you know, it, 
it's called um, in statistics uh, controlling for con confounding variables. Mm -hmm. So we want to want to look at the pure effect of activity, which is independent of BMI, which is independent of nutrition, and, and so because there, you know, there's a lot of um, overlap between these areas, and um, it's a bit of a hard one to explain sometimes. You know, from a from a HRA point of view, if I had a if I had a one question HRA that just asked you your BMI, I could tell you that with a BMI of you know, forty one, your life expectancy has dropped by ten years, right? right yeah. But that's a single question. If I wanted to add in um, an exercise question, the BMI of forty one doesn't give you ten years anymore because some of the effect of uh, that activity is already in your BMI, but uh, mm. it wasn't taken out as a confounder, confounding factor. So, the more things you add into your HRA, the less um, each one can affect the overall outcome as the the crossover, the confounding factors are eliminated. So it's a it's a bit of um, st statistical jiggery pokery, I call it.